0: Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your hosts. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And on today's episode, we are going to do a question and answers edition 2.0. And we are so excited that we've gotten so many great questions that we put out on Facebook and we put out on Twitter. So thank you. And also thank you to all who have been faithful listeners of the podcast. Just recently, our podcast broke the 25,000 mark for downloads so I don't know about Father West, but I'm I'm humbled by that mm. that people are interested in listening to us. I just kind of assumed by this point in life it would be kind of my friends and family listening out of pity because oh Miles is making a podcast. But here we are. There's real people interested in this stuff. So thank you all for listening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's so cool to get um to get messages from people who uh you know, we could identify with like, you know, 5 years ago we were probably in similar positions of exploring, you know, are we going to do this Anglican thing or or what? And um, it's cool to just be able to hear people who are at the same stages, you know, where we were and be, our podcast actually helped them, you know, decide to become Anglican or whatever. It's like, I just never even
0: crossed my mind that that would be a possibility. So it's really awesome. It is really awesome. So now to you, the listeners and your questions, Father West, take us away. All right. Well, our
1: first question is from Jared H., Uh, He's the host of another podcast called Matins, and I think it's important because I think three or four years ago, I remember lamenting on one of the Anglican Facebook pages that there were no really good Anglican podcasts, Uh, but that's really started to change a lot. I mean, there's a ton of really good programs for Anglican people, and there are a variety of programs for different camps within Anglicanism. Uh, so it's really great to see. So Matins is a, is a short podcast. I think he only does about 15 to 20 minute episodes where he just reads primary sources in the Anglican or Catholic tradition and uh, talks about them and it's, it's really, really wonderful. So give uh, Jared's podcast a listen. Uh, but here's his question. He sent it to us on voice message.
0: Hey guys, this is Jared from Austin. And first of all, I just want to say that I really enjoy the podcast. So, I didn't grow up as an Anglican. Uh, I used to be a Baptist, and if I remember correctly, the two of you both come from non Anglican backgrounds, and I think at least one of you used to be a Baptist as well. And I think that there's a lot of reasons to become an Anglican if you're a Baptist, but I'm wondering what you, as Anglicans now, think we can learn from our Baptist brothers and sisters,
1: you know, looking back. What are things do you think that we should borrow from those traditions as well as we bring them into the Anglican and Catholic tradition? Thanks, guys. So, Father Miles, what can we learn from Baptists?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I know that I've mentioned it before on the podcast towards the beginning when we were giving introductions, but I was raised in a Baptist church, and most of my family, I would say, still kind of operates in Baptistic Christianity. And so the one thing that I think I would say that I have gleaned and taken from my Baptist upbringing and that I continue to see among Baptist Christians around me is their love and devotion for preaching, good preaching, putting time and effort into preaching. And now, unfortunately, kind of those traditions that are quote unquote Catholic, Roman Catholic, Anglicans, Orthodox, Lutheran, they're they're known for kind of poor preaching these days. That's not always been the case. Some of the greatest preachers uh, in the English-speaking tradition have been in the Anglican Church. I'm thinking of like John Donne, who is this phenomenal preacher and poet. But here we are. History has moved on, and Anglicans are not known for their great preaching. So I think we can learn that from Baptist. I don't think it has to be 45 minutes and be an acrostic poem, but I do think we need to put some time and energy and effort into learning the skill and art of homiletics.
1: Yeah. And like you, I was raised Baptist and, you know, was educated at Liberty University. And uh, so I learned a lot from people in the Baptist tradition. I think probably the thing that I came away with appreciating the most on top of all the things that you said, Father Miles, uh, is really their love for scripture. Um, which I think is one of the reasons why preaching is so important to them is because they really do care about the Bible and they want to uh, rightly divide the word of God. And obviously we have our disagreements on how to do that. Uh, But I think it's, I think that their love for scripture is admirable and definitely worthy of emulation. Um, And technically, I mean, as Anglicans, we have all the tools for that. You know, I mean, we do these readings in the daily office lectionary on Sundays, we're reading from multiple passages of scripture. So uh, scripture, is pretty thoroughly, um, a part of what we do on a daily basis and on a weekly basis. Uh, it's just sometimes I think people might, um, might use that as an excuse. Like they don't have their own, um, love of scripture. You know, they kind of just hear it and they don't really, um, wrestle with it or, um, engage it at a deeper level. So, um, I think we can definitely learn that from the Baptists for
0: sure. Absolutely. Ready for the next one? I think so. All right. Tim K. asked the following, following up on the Holy Orders episode, which was excellent. Thank you, Tim. We didn't even pay you to say that. My question is this. If Holy Orders are necessary to confer grace in the sacraments, what is the Anglican view of the sacraments of other churches? Is grace conferred in communion in a Presbyterian or Baptist church, for instance? So I think this is a good question, and it's one that comes up a lot, uh, in For those who are coming into Anglicanism f- or any sacramental tradition from a non-sacramental tradition, you eventually come to this point where it kind of clicks in your head and you go, oh, this is all really great. But what about everyone who doesn't really buy into this? The short answer is that God hasn't bound himself to the sacraments, uh, even the sacrament of holy orders. But we as the church are bound to that What's going on in a Presbyterian communion, a Baptist communion? The answer is we pray and hope that God's grace is there, and I think personally, I have I have great confidence that of course the Lord would want to share His love and grace with people in that way, but we can't be sure.
1: I definitely agree uh, with that. Assessment, I I will say um, one of my friends, uh, Ian, shout out to him, calls me um, a spiky Anglo-Catholic these days. So in the spirit of being a spiky Anglo-Catholic, I will counterbalance a little bit, uh, which is to say uh, that apostolic secession and the reason for the sacraments in general has to do with assurance, right? That's why we do baptism is because you can always look at your baptism and say, with assurance that the Holy Spirit worked in your lives. The same is true week after week when we go to the table for communion. Apostolic secession is a way in which we have the assurance that the sacraments work. Uh, So in cases where apostolic secession is intentionally severed and rejected, there is no assurance. So well, yes, you know, there's this kind of mystical body of Christ that we all, you know, it, we can't really always define the contours of. You know, the Orthodox would say we know where the church is, we know where it isn't, um, but without a bishop in valid secession, there can be no assurance, and uh, and so it gets kind of tricky. So I think we, I at least, in personally, you know, I like the idea that that God's not bound by the sacraments because then it um it frees up some possibility for people who I no respect and love who aren't in a tradition where that exists but we have to be careful that it doesn't take away the kind of urgency with which we say hey this is something that's really important because it is a distinguishing mark of the church that christ has founded
0: yeah totally agree
1: all right our next question comes from twitter uh this is from at cornballer uh don't know his real name but we'll go with the twitter handle i, I hope it's cornballer <laughs> i hope so though that would be some mean parents he asks uh, what do you think about the recent Hart and Lightheart controversy? So uh, for those of you who don't know, Hart and Lightheart <clears throat> refers to Eastern Orthodox philosopher David Bentley Hart and uh, Presbyterian scholar and theologian uh, Peter Lighthart. And a few months ago, uh, Eastern Orthodox philosopher David Bentley Hart released his new book, uh, That All Shall Be Saved. It's an argument for universalism. And Peter Lighthart, who's reformed, obviously had some problems with the book. And so he posted a review of it on his blog, which is called the Theopolis Institute. And we'll post a link to that review and uh, Hart's response in the show notes. But the thrust of Lightheart's review is that Hart doesn't adequately deal with the Old Testament, which can sometimes shatter our expectations if we've only been conditioned by the New Testament. Um, And, you know, we've talked about how Old and New Testament are in harmony with each other and stuff like that before. So it's not a question of disharmony, but but rather that Lightheart is just saying, Hart makes arguments from scripture, but he never anywhere addresses the Old Testament where you have some passages that might kind of pose problems for the universalist position. I think that Lightheart is spot on. It's definitely a weakness in Hart's book. His scriptural work is primarily in the New Testament and has almost no attention given to the Old Testament. But Lightheart, uh, his review spurred Hart to send him a uh, rather bombastic email, which if you're familiar with Hart, he's kind of known for being bombastic anyways. And so Lightheart published the email on his blog. And uh, frankly, the response that Hart provides reads more like a series of Donald Trump tweets than the work of an actual scholar. The most problematic part of the, uh, he's, he's very patronizing to, to Peter Lightheart is what I mean by that. He keeps calling him by his first name, Peter, and uh, just kind of, Gives him all these backhanded compliments and subtle digs. And, uh, but I thought the most problematic part of the post was when he said, to my way of thinking, Hart supposedly <clears> representing <throat> the patristic and orthodox position, he says, yours is a truly astonishing argument, Peter. I often have to remind myself how great a distance separates apostolic, patristic, and pre-modern orthodoxy from modern fundamentalism. Somehow it always comes as a shock to the system. So let me say this up front and return to it. Fundamentalist literalism is a modern heresy, one that breaks from Christian practice with such violence as to call into question whether those who practice it are still truly obedient to the apostolic faith at all. That is not an accusation, but it is a lament. You may be pure, but your premises are corrupt. You ask if I think Yahweh of the Old Testament was good. First of all, there is no single Yahweh in the Hebrew corpus. The various texts of the Second Temple redactors collated into the Torah and Tanakh emanate from various epochs in the development of Canaanite and Israelite religion and reflect the spiritual sensibilities of very different moments in the evolution of what would in time become Judaism. Most of the Hebrew Bible is a polytheistic gallimphari, I don't know if I said that word right. And Yahweh is a figure in a shifting pantheon of Elohim or deities. In the later prophets, he is for the most part a very good God, yes, and even appears to have become something like God in the fullest sense. But in most of the Old Testament, he is, of course, presented as quite evil, a blood-drenched, cruel, (laughs) war-making, genocidal, irascible, murderous, jealous storm god. Neither he nor his rivals or king or father or equal or alter ego, depending on which era of Canaanite and Israelite religion we're talking about, El or Elion or Elohim is a good god. Each is a psychologically limited figure from a rich but violent ancient Near Eastern culture. Or, more accurately, two cultures that progress- progressively amalgamated over many centuries. If you listen to the uh, interview that we did with Dr. Hans Borsma, uh, which should have been released recently, uh, we didn't—I didn't make it specific when I asked the question to the Heart Light Heart debate, but it is what I had in mind when I asked him about how the early fathers treated the Old Testament uh, conquest accounts. Um, And his response was that Origen and Gregory, who are the fathers that Hart holds up as him representing that tradition. Um, But Borsma said that they have an unfortunate tendency of allegorizing portions of the Old Testament that they don't like to the point that they lose any sense of historicity, which is fairly unique in the early church fathers. We talked about this in our episode on biblical interpretation uh, that allegory doesn't negate the historical or the literal facets of the text. So um, they run into some trouble there. And it's also kind of ironic that Hart claims to stand in the patristic pre-modern exegetical tradition while labeling Lightheart a modern fundamentalist. Because Lighthart, if you read him or you go listen to his podcast, uh, he's very immersed in patristic exegesis. He's absolutely not a fundamentalist, at least in the in the actual meaning of that word. Um, and B, you know, I think the church fathers rarely allegorized in a way that absolutely dismissed historicity. I mean, outside of origin and Gregory, it's just not a common thing that they did. Um, and then the final concerning part about this whole exchange was that the kind of Old Testament scholarship that Hart is advocating for here, this idea that, um, that there are different depictions of God throughout the Old Testament and that, uh, you can divvy up the depictions by their source is really um not even regular modernism but actually a really radical expression of higher criticism like I, as someone who enjoys old testament studies and has done some work there i that's a fairly fringe view that hart is advocating so at the end of the day i think hart makes valuable contributions to the theistic tradition overall like his books atheist delusion the experience of god beauty of the infinite those are all phenomenal and important reads But that all should be saved, and his response to Lightheart should give a serious pause about, I think, unilaterally endorsing his work.
0: Yeah, I think what this kind of debacle has revealed is that really, uh, this is not a value claim, but more of just an observation. I think David Bentley Hart really does operate in what I would call the uh, liberal Protestant hermeneutic when it comes to scripture and it comes to history. And I think a lot of people don't recognize that because he's Eastern Orthodox. He's able to hide under this vast traditional branch of Christianity to where he can say things and get away with it because, well, you're Eastern Orthodox. Obviously, you believe in Orthodox, big O, small O theology. And so, but I think it's clear to see that Hart really does approach the text and approach theology like a progressive Protestant. And that should then inform us of how of what is being communicated in uh, that all shall be saved, right? That he's really approaching this more from that standpoint than perhaps a, a, a completely faithful and just plain reading of the patristics. That's my two cents. Yeah, I think you're right. All right, next question. This is really two questions that we've combined together because they fall under the same category. We have Gabe H. asking, so what are your thoughts on the Lutheran understanding of the sacraments? particularly on how they view the nature of the sacraments, and number and use. And then also Melvin L., who from Twitter, at MD3 underscore PhD, asks, What are the theological distinctives between confessional Lutherans and conservative Anglo-Catholics? Often, I often feel like when theology is discussed on the podcast, the Anglo-Catholic response sounds pretty identical to what many confessional Lutherans would say, are Anglo-Catholics just Lutherans with better liturgy? And the answer, of course, is yes, yes. No, I'm kidding. So as I've also said on the podcast, I sojourned for three years in a Lutheran church and drunk deeply from that tradition. And so I, I have great, deep respect for Lutheranism, even though I have cast my lot and decided to go the way of Anglicanism here and and unto ages of ages. So I think that Lutherans and Anglicans overlap tremendously when it comes to sacramental theology. Luther's and really the Lutheran tradition's understanding of baptism is, in my opinion, the best thing that came out of the Reformation. It is a reclaiming of a patristic and scriptural theology regarding the sacrament of baptism, and Anglicans classically and today should wholesale accept it, especially Anglo-Catholics. And then also, once we realize that no Lutheran actually believes in what's called consubstantiation in regards to the Eucharist, I think we can see that the classical Lutheran approach to the Eucharist is almost identical to that of the classical Anglican approach, with this possible exception that Lutherans insist that even unbelievers eat the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist whereas the 39 articles, so classical Anglican expression, says that only those with faith receive Christ in the Eucharist. Now, personally, I'm doing more research and reading some books on this. I think that it's all a matter of semantics. The Lutherans emphasize that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist, and it doesn't depend upon the strength of your faith, even to the point that someone who's unbelieving, Christ is still present Luther and the Lutheran tradition is completely debunking any notion of receptionism. Now the Anglicans in the third nine articles are quoting Augustine who says the faithful don't commune with Christ in the Eucharist. However, they do receive him for their condemnation. See it's 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 different sides of the same coin. Do you, you can't receive Christ in an Anglican mind because to receive him or to commune with him, I should say, is salvific. Of course, the unbelievers don't do that. But for a Lutheran, Christ is present, so therefore you eat him. Luther and the Lutheran traditions vary uh, in the German fashion, kind of scientific and, uh, and hard and fast. He's there, you eat him, boom, we're done. Now, for an Anglo-Catholic, we would want to push our Lutheran brethren, I think, to uh, put some money where their mouth is. And if they truly believe in the objective real presence then I think they should be okay with some form of adoration of Christ in the sacrament. But few Lutherans would jump on board with that. Now, in terms of numbering the sacraments, we do differ. Luther created this scheme for what qualifies as a sacrament, and it, and it had three parts to it. It's something that had to be commanded by Christ. It had to be attached to a physical piece of matter, water, bread, wine, And it has to come with some sort of promise. In other words, it's some sort of gospel initiative. Christ is saving you. It's for you. Washing away sins. So with this definition, those three things, uh, you can see why he ended up with only two sacraments. Only two things meet those qualifications, though he really struggled with absolution. He wanted it to be a sacrament. He even calls it a third sacrament in his larger catechism. But there's no physical matter in his mind. We could, we could debate, you know, the words, the, the, the absolution itself is physical matter, but he never went there. Now, as Anglicans, our definition for what is a sacrament, it stems from the great tradition, particularly Augustine, who says that a sacrament is an outward sign of an inward spiritual grace. And we would go on to clarify that by saying that that sign actually conveys the grace which it signifies. Now, this led Augustine, according to some scholars, to count up to about 300 sacraments in his mind. So he included all sorts of things like candles on the altar rail, vestments, the sign of the cross, funeral rites, monastic rites. So uh, anything and everything that the church did for Augustine was a sacrament, and it conveyed grace because it was an outward sign with an inward and spiritual reality. Now, over time, the church limited the idea of sacrament to those rites and outward ceremonies that convey sanctifying grace. This is what Thomas Aquinas speaks of. So in this way, sacraments are directly and uniquely connected to Jesus and his work for us and for our salvation. This led the medieval church to set the number at seven, which the Anglican church maintained. All seven sacraments are in the Book of Common Prayer, and they are all mentioned in Third Articles. Even if some among the early Anglican ranks and some even to this day don't like calling five of them sacraments, they prefer sacramental rites. Or they like to distinguish between sacraments of the gospel, sacraments of the church. The the point is is that Anglicans maintain. And now in modern times, in the great ecumenical dialogues of the past hundred years, Rome has maintained seven sacraments. And the East has agreed upon seven, though they'll say kind of everything's a sacrament, but we can all at least agree, at least these seven are sacraments, right? And then they kind of just go swing incense. And so we've reached universal consent on the number of sacraments in the church. So that's a difference between Anglicans and Lutherans. Anglicans tend to be okay with that numbering, and there's your history of why. Now, The other part of the question is, what is the difference, the main difference, between conservative Anglo-Catholics and confessional Lutherans? And I would say, and maybe, Father Wes, you can weigh in more on this, that one of the... the the main difference is one of emphasis and then the source of assurance and authority. For Anglo-Catholics, the source of emphasis, or I would say the emphasis, and then source of assurance and authority, is the Church. And this is namely through apostolic succession. Anglicanism is an ecclesiological tradition because it sees itself as a part of the one great true church. For confessional Lutherans, you can go read article seven of the Augsburg Confession. Uh, the church is simply that where the word is preached in the sacraments duly administered. Now, I can make a great case that duly administered means apostolic succession, but they didn't. And so it Ecclesiology gets put on the back burner. So what's the emphasis in Lutheranism? Justification by faith and the assurance that comes from the word of God as defined in Lutheran theology. So it's a theological con- tradition rather than ecclesiological tradition.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think our soteriology does uh, separate us a little bit. Uh, not that we have to see these things in competition necessarily, and I think our episode back on the new perspective on Paul might be helpful because we do kind of go through some of these issues. But the emphasis on Lutheranism—I mean, the, the kind of one note on their um, fiddle—is justification by faith alone. That's right. Which is not bad. In fact, in the Third and Articles affirm justification by faith alone. I think a reading by of. Paul that is fair and grounded in the Western tradition is one that yields the same conclusion. But I think as Anglo-Catholics we have maybe a more holistic view of salvation so we don't just limit it to justification and like we've talked about with this idea of imputation and impartation and um, all those kind of ideas, you know, as Anglo-Catholics we don't necessarily adhere to one over the other. Um, We we believe in this kind of robust view of incorporation and uh, so I think think those things do keep us apart uh, still um, on top of what you have already said, Father Miles, but I will say uh, one book that I found really helpful uh, was a series of lectures by uh, Richard Lawrence, who was a bishop who had some influence on the uh, later Tractarians. And he has a really good set of lectures called An Attempt to Illustrate Those Articles of the Church of England, Which the Calvinists Improperly Considered as Calvinistical, which is a great word, Calvinistical. It's a wonderful title. It is a wonderful title. So his argument is the bulk of the 39 articles come from Lutheranism. Uh, there are areas where they maybe draw from the Reformed, but the primary uh, well that they draw from is is the Lutheran tradition, and in fact to the point that it precludes five-point Calvinism. So really interesting book um, that helps kind of tie these two together a little bit.
0: Yeah, I, I would be bold enough to say that I really think Anglicanism and then over time Anglo-Catholicism is the better correction and expression of what Luther wanted to do. Not necessarily Lutheranism, but Luther himself. Absolutely. All
1: right, our next question is from Twitter. At Juan Hernandez Jr.
0: asks, where do Anglo-Catholics stand on the filioque and why? Just say it and stop pretending to be Eastern Orthodox. Also, your name isn't Vlad or Demetrius.
1: <laughs> that is very true. And and it's, it is sort of sad. Uh, I mean, as Anglo-Catholics, we should be... Um, in the norm of Western Christianity. Um, but you do see in recent years, a shift in Anglicanism to make the filioque clause optional.
0: Right. And I'm, I don't have it in front of me, but I even think the new 2019 book of common prayer from the ACNA, I know the trial text did. I'm not sure if it made it into the prayer book. Uh, they put the filioque in the creed, in brackets, and we'll just yes. say for our listeners who don't know what we mean by filioque, filioque is a Latin word that means "and the Son." And so, when you go and look up the Nicene Creed, we believe in the the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of Life, who proceedeth from the Father and, and the, the son. son. That's an addition to the creed in the Western churches that wasn't original in uh, when the Nicene Creed was crafted or and then revised in the fourth century.
1: Yeah, I think it's important. Uh, because the concern that the Orthodox have is that uh, the idea of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, they would say, is not necessarily explicitly biblical, and, um, and you risk creating a kind of hierarchy in the Trinity where the Holy Spirit is sort of lesser because he flows out of the Father and the Son together. Um, I, I don't know that this is I, I can understand their objection. I also understand their objection to how the filioque got added to the creed. But I think we have to remember that the internal relationship between the persons of the Trinity is reflected in their external revelation. So that means that the Trinity can't act in a way that the Trinity is not. And from Scripture, I think we can deduce that the Spirit does come in some respect from the Father and the Son. So John fifteen twenty six, Jesus says, But when the counselor, who's the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. So Jesus is sending the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. So based on John 15, 26, it seems like we could say he's proceeding from the Father and the Son because the Son is the one who sends the Spirit. And because the filioque is true, I think Galatians 4, 6 is also true. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. But that, that, that phrasing doesn't make sense if, if the spirit doesn't proceed from the father and the son, at least in my opinion. You can also find a litany of quotes from the church fathers, both east and west, which affirm that the Holy Spirit proceeds both from the father and the son or that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father through the son, which are effectively the same thing. Um, And in fact, it's this is interesting. So Bishop Callistos Ware, who's a pretty well-known Orthodox uh, writer, um, he wrote a book on the Orthodox Church, I think a long time ago now. Um, But in that book, he's very um, adamantly against the filioque. But this is a recent statement that he made about this. He says the filioque controversy, which has separated us for so many centuries, is more than a mere technicality, but it is not insoluble. Qualifying the firm position taken when I wrote my book, The Orthodox Church, 20 years ago, I now believe, after further study, that the problem is more in the area of semantics and different emphases than in any doctrinal differences.
0: Yeah, and I think that would probably be, to answer the original question from At Juan Hernandez Jr., where do Anglo-Catholics stand on the filioque, is you might find Anglo-Catholics all over the place, but I think that... In general, what you're going to find is the filioque is a right exposition of Trinitarian theology. It has been poorly understood in both the East and the West. And the one thing, but it's still right, but the one thing we might object to the most is how it was added and the circumstances around it. But it's come down to us in the Western tradition. It has come down to us in the prayer book. And it's right. It's not heretical. And I and I appreciate Bishop Callista Ware's recognition of that. And so I think if we ever have a, get to have an ecumenical council, number eight, we would maybe tweak it and change it to, he proceeds from the father through the son, and that might solve all of these issues. So there you go. Our next question is from Aubrey N., and she asks, how do you balance the use of the daily office, i.e. Bible reading? with personal Bible study and different forms of prayer, thoughts on the personal use of devotional forms of prayer, for example, Lectio Divina, Centering Prayer, etc. Aubrey, it's a great question. The first thing that we would want to say is that the Daily Office, with its prescribed Bible reading plan, is kind of the bread and butter of Anglican spiritual formation. And so I would, if anyone were to come to me and say, what should I do? That's what I would say. If someone were to come to me as a priest and say, Father, I'm doing this massive Bible study over here, but I never do morning and evening prayer. I would probably tell them, you need to start doing morning and evening prayer. Like, this is important for our common prayer life. Now, you can take those passages of Scripture and run with them and study them for hours and hours. There's no reason you just have to read them through and then be done with it. Sit there, study for an hour, and then move on to the canticle and the rest of the prayers and and et cetera. So that's what I would say is the daily office is prime and important. And then if you want to add anything else to that, be my guest, be my guest. Now, thoughts on the use of devotional forms of prayer, Lectio Divina centering prayer, you know, the Anglican tradition flowing from kind of classical Catholic, I hate to use the word mysticism. It might be misunderstood, but just spirituality. is kind of open to those things. We're not this hard tradition that's really suspicious, as I heard, I had friends in seminary like this, kind of harsh against anything that could be perceived as mystical. So have at it. Lectio Divina, Centering Prayer, Uh, we've talked on that episode about the Jesus prayer, rosaries, things like this. Yeah. Have at it. Pray, pray, pray. The more you commune with God, the better.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's, I think like you said, it's the daily offices are the bread and butter. So all those extra forms are good and beneficial, but it really does vary probably person to person and season to season as far as what they actually do. So like, I know people who are Anglicans who would say like, I do, you know, the rosary sometimes instead of morning prayer, or I do the breviary instead of the prayer book. But that's it, it, th- those things shouldn't substitute what is common prayer that we all share, because that's part of being in the church, right, is that we have this these common devotions that we all do, whether we're together or apart. Um, but I think it is important that we have extra devotional activity going on, um, but it's just hard to say exactly what that should look like for everyone um who might be in different stages of life and different seasons and, and things like that. Like I personally am reading um St. Anselm and that's my devotional activity that I do above and beyond.
0: Yeah, and I would say get a spiritual director. Mm-hmm. You know, these are I would not advise anyone to kind of mark out their own spiritual path of discipleship. Talk with your priest, talk with a spiritual director and let them guide you. A big part of spiritual formation is submission, which means if the spiritual director does, says do something and you don't want to do it, as long as it's not wrong and sinful, you do it. That's part of your spiritual formation. So we're not your spiritual directors. So we can't force you to do morning and evening prayer. But I hope your priest will.
1: And I will say one other thing about Lectio Divina, which is a great practice, and I, I don't do it nearly as much as I would like to. But um, if you're interested in exploring what that looked like for the church fathers, uh, a good book that I may have mentioned previously in other episodes is uh, Lectio Divina, The Medieval Experience of Reading by Duncan Robertson. Uh, that's a really helpful uh, tool that I've used. Um, and actually, Dr. Borsma recommends it as far as learning about the practice. Um, I don't really have many thoughts on centering prayer, though. I don't know about you, Father, but it's not not a practice I've ever really engaged in.
0: No, I think as long as it doesn't become kind of goofy mysticism. And by that I mean like having strange visions and uh-huh. I don't know what was the one story I ho- heard someone described the holy spirit as a blue ball bouncing around their bedroom. Let's not do that. If by centering <laughs> prayer <don't>. you mean <laughs> Please don't. If by centering prayer you mean saying the Jesus prayer and centering your thoughts and listening and being quiet and still before the Lord. That just—that sounds like the Psalms to me, so go for it.
1: Our next question is from at Cornballer again, and he asks, uh, how do Anglo-Catholics understand the relationship between the Reformation and Anglicanism historically and theologically? So an easy question. Easy.
0: Softball. That's right. Yeah, it's great that this question is being posed to us on this October thirty first is when right. we're recording. It is "quote unquote" Reformation Day, so it's something that every all time all Hallows this year, Eve actually all Hallows Eve, amen. So it's I think it's something that every Anglican thinks about this time of the year is like, oh wait, there was a Reformation, and what does that mean? So I think it's a it's a tricky question to answer. So we have to be able to show and be, I think, upfront that yes, Anglicanism came through the Reformation, right? I really get frustrated with Anglo-Catholics, which, whom I love and respect, and they're my friends, act as if Anglicanism never had anything to do with the Reformation. That is just not true. But at the same time, what the Reformation produced on the continent and what it has therefore produced kind of in modern evangelicalism, modern forms of Protestantism, this is not Anglicanism. So it's this tricky relationship where the Church of England was reformed It went through a Reformation, but not the same way the continent went through a Reformation. And we shouldn't think that Reformation movements are contra Catholic tradition. There have always been Reformation movements throughout the history of the church. Uh, Pope Gregory the Great reformed the liturgy in the 6-700s. If you want to use Rome as an example, technically Trent, after our Reformation, was a Reformation movement. Uh, And then Vatican II that was a big reformational movement. I mean, this is just what everyone does, spring cleaning. We just do it about every 500 years. That's right. What are you
1: dressing up for as Halloween, for Halloween uh, Father Miles, since we're on the subject of October yeah. 31st?
0: Yeah, I'm, I haven't gotten that far in my life. I've got to get past this episode, and then I can think about what I'm doing tonight. But we did go to my in-laws Baptist Trunky Treat event. Last week, you can find the picture on Twitter where I came home immediately from mass at church and I've been commuting an hour to get to church. So I'm still in all black in my collar and I want to go just get out of the house and do something with my son who's 15 months old. And so what does my wife do? She dresses him up in all black and puts a white piece of paper under his neck to make it look like he's in a collar. And we go and we get so many comments about how great our costumes are. And I'm like, uh, oh, yeah, if only you knew this that's right. This, this is problem. my day clothes.
1: I had that problem when I was uh, at the church in Lynchburg, Virginia, where um, we would do a we would hand out like 500 pieces of candy uh, to kids or not 500 pieces, but 500 bags of candy to kids in the neighborhood that our church was in. And I would have my collar on uh, so that I could meet people and talk to them. And I would always get the question, oh, is that your costume or are you actually a priest? I said, sometimes it feels like a little bit of both.
0: Yeah, it's, it was funny. It was the only time I've worn my collar. You know, we're here in the South. No one really knows what to do with a man in a collar. That's true. And I, it's one of the only times I've worn it in public and no one really did a double take. It <laughs> just That's like, crazy. oh yeah, man's in a collar. Sure. All right. Oh, next cool. question. At R-Y-H cast. This is from tr- Twitter. Renewing your heart is what R-Y-H stands for. How has the theology of Jacob Arminius, John Wesley, or perhaps more or less Archbishop William Loud's theology affected or influenced your own understanding of Anglican theology positively? So, Arminianism, Loudianism, etc. Thanks for the time, Fathers. Grace and peace. Grace and peace to you, renewing your heart.
1: That is a, that is an Anglican. Well, no, actually I don't think they're Anglican. I think they're Wesleyan or Methodist uh, podcast. So that's probably why they're interested in what we think about Arminius and Wesley. Um, Obviously I'm named after John Wesley, so I feel like I have to have some sympathy for the guy. Uh, And of course he was a Church of England uh, priest until the day he died. Um, And so I've always been kind of sympathetic to Wesleyan Arminianism. Uh, I think that uh, if you had a gun to my head, and Calvinism and Arminianism were the only two options. Then I would probably, hands down, choose Arminianism. Uh, probably, that, hands
0: down, great. Probably,
1: hands down. Yes, that's right. Uh, that said, I so my problem with Arminius, and to a lesser extent, but I think it's still applicable in John Wesley, is that they don't have a really robust sacramentology. And I think that's a problem insofar as then it emphasizes decisionism. And so when, when that's the framework by which one is Arminian, I think you do run the risk of some sort of semi-Pelagian thought.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree, except I might actually push against you and say the one thing I was going to say that, at least for Wesley, that's positively influenced me is his high view of the sacrament. So maybe not baptism. And so this decision theology comes out, but Wesley is on the scene. I think we can all admit the 1700s in England was a pretty dry season for the church. And so what they did was was kind of needed. But one of the things Wesley was all about was the Eucharist. Uh-huh. He was one of the first Anglicans after the initial re- Reformation to push for weekly, even daily reception of the Blessed Sacrament. That just wasn't going on in the 1700s. We're at that time period where it ends up falling to monthly or quarterly. And so a lot of what Wesley pushes for, remember, Wesley dies in 1793. What he's pushing for actually gets picked up by the Oxford movement in Mm -hmm. some ways.
1: Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I think, um, yeah, I think I meant more his view on baptism, which actually he still did have a high, he did have a high view of baptism. It's not like he was a Baptist or even like most modern Methodists today who, deny things like baptism regeneration it's just that his emphasis was so much on conversionism that i think you do get a sort of decisionism that comes out of that movement i don't know how much of that is intended on wesley's part though so it's always hard especially with someone like wesley where you know a tradition has kind of sprung up because of his thought but it's foreign to the actual tradition that he occupied so it gets kind of weird as far as what they choose to emphasize from wesley
0: Right. Yeah. I, I kind of wish that the Methodist movement, that kind of, the way it's become today is generally more low church. I, I wish they would just rejoin the Anglican church. I think they would fit in well and we could be, I mean, we have enough messes and problems going on. So surely you would fit in just as fine. Well, and actually
1: that has been an issue of contention at times in, in English yeah. church history. Uh In fact, there was talk about getting the Methodists back into the Church of England, and it actually caused J.I. Packer and E.L. Mascal to team up against the Methodists because, of course, they didn't have actual orders, so um, you can't just bring them in and make, them, make everything seem okay. But but as far as the actual question about Arminianism and Wesleyanism, so, so at this point in time, even though in the past I've really kind of identified as an Arminian Wesleyan, I think I would identify more as wh- – as a sacramental monergist at this point. So I don't think that precludes the idea of choice, but it does emphasize the one-way movement of God in the sacrament. So I don't know know exactly how to put all those pieces together, and I've yet to see a really strong synthesis between Arminianism and sacramentalism. So I guess tentatively I still sort of embrace aspects of Wesleyanism and Arminianism, but I, I don't do it so wholeheartedly because of the sacraments.
0: Yeah, I think I can resonate with that. I, I resonate with Wesley trying to, in his mind, and he really returned to the Church Fathers. He quoted them a lot. He tries to put them forward, especially with his soteriology.
1: Yeah, and uh, the Eastern I, Church Fathers, too, by the way. He's yeah, not just Western. He, he uses he a lot of imagery the East, from the yeah. Eastern Fathers.
0: So I don't, I don't think I would claim that I'm an Arminian, but I definitely wouldn't claim I'm a Calvinist. I would just claim I'm a Catholic. And there's this weird, blurry middle ground where you kind of say, oh, yeah, it's all God. And also, you better do your part. And I'm a sacramentalist, monergist, and uh, I just take the Eucharist and pray God will save me. Amen. That's all we can do. That's all we can do. (laughs) So
1: uh, Aubrey N. Uh, asks another question, uh, and this is a good one, I think. How do you use the church calendar in your personal devotional life and family devotional life?
0: Yeah, so for me and my family, we, we do an Advent wreath devotional that, that I wrote. So it's, it's, it's nothing special. It's kind of collects from the prayer book, a few readings of scripture. We do it on Sunday evenings, sometimes Saturday evenings before the Sundays in Advent or on the Sundays in Advent, so it's just a way for our family to gather around, light the candle, pray, and then we do a big one with a generally kind of a meal or something special on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, so it's a lot of fun. We we try to celebrate epiphany with gift-giving, and then we, we we as a family hold to Lenten fasting, and then we observe the feasts. So during Eastertide, uh we tend to have kind of a drink every day. Let's celebrate, right? Nothing in excess, but we've got to, if we're going to fast, we're going to celebrate the feasts as well. So it, it adds rhythm and spirituality and prayers and, and different ways that we mark our everyday life.
1: Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's kind of similar to the things that we try and do as well. I know um, one thing I've been trying to do uh, lately, um, the past maybe year or so, has been uh, fasting on Fridays, As well i think that's a really helpful rhythm to be in and something that the church has observed for a very long time um but yeah all the seasons are important and i think it's great to um to find ways that you can as an individual and with your family participate in those seasons so i really like um i really like the poems of malcolm geit and his books that go along with the church calendars so like during lent i always try and read his um his poetry and uh, some of the other seasons that he's written about too are really good, but I, I especially love his Lent, his Lent collection.
0: Yeah. His for Advent, it's Advent, Christmas and Epiphany. They're mm-hmm. phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yep. All right. We have another question from Aubrey in she asks, how do you see the vocational diaconate serving a role within the ACNA? In general, but also tangentially with regard to women's participation and service within the church.
1: I believe Aubrey um, is a newer listener, which is great, and she's really excited. She may not have gotten past the part where we um, join the
0: APA. That's true, but we'll speak just in Anglicanism as general. So yes, Aubrey, if you're listening, Father Wesley and I are not priests in the Anglican Church in North America, though we were. And I think we have enough knowledge to speak to the context, but we'll speak generally. So uh, let's just talk about vocational diaconate. So I think it's a great ministry and one that I am so glad is being resurrected in some ways over the past. It, it kind of died out really in the Middle Ages. And it, it's been pushed the past 50 or 60 years. But for the longest time, being a deacon was just this stepping stone to being a priest. So I'm glad to see that there are people who feel called to the diaconate as a vocation and not just, I got to get through this to become a priest and, you know, maybe a bishop or whatever. So I, even at my current parish, I'm blessed by a vocational deacon, Father Thad Osborne. He helps me in so many ways. He's an older gentleman and he has just incredible knowledge and is able to guide and help me and does so much around the parish. Deacon those who are vocationally called to it are those who have one foot in the church and one foot in the world in some capacity. So I see it as they can help in ways from outreach, organizing your missions at your local parish, to administration. I mean, how many priests do you know that are good at administration? Exactly. And then, of course, to preaching and teaching, catechizing children. There's just really anything that the priest needs assistance with, a vocational deacon can be there to help. So my deacon does all sorts of things around the parish, and I am so incredibly thankful. And it really models Acts chapter 7, where the apostles are saying, we need to preach and celebrate the sacraments. You all feed the widows. And I feel that what I say is, I need to study sermons and visit people in the hospital. You make the bulletin, and he's happy to do it, and so many other things.
1: Yes. Yeah. Same Same here. We have a vocational deacon uh, who is excellent and does a lot of that same stuff for us. And so it's hard to imagine life without him. It's, uh, it's an important role. I, I do think as far as the question about women, though, uh, it does um, need to be nuanced a little more because I think some people have fallen into, in the general landscape of Anglicanism, thinking that uh, well, if we just allow women deacons, then we can kind of solve the problem. Uh, but the problem—the thing we have to remember is that holy orders are not three separate sacraments, but they're one sacrament, and it has three degrees. So obviously not every deacon is a priest, not every priest is a bishop, but every bishop is a deacon and a priest. And so um, because uh, orders flow out of the episcopate, um, the bishop is the font of ministry is the way Vernon Staley talks about it. Uh, these aren't three separate things. They're one thing. They're just divvied up really for sake of convenience and uh, authority. Um, so either I think you have to to make the argument either women can be any of the three offices or they can't be any of them. Uh, and so obviously we are occupy a tradition where women are not ordained in holy orders. Um, and I think that there's some good reasons for that. And we can maybe get into that on an episode sometime, Father Miles.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I think your point holds well. And that is kind of this middle position. You can be a deacon or you can be a deacon and a priest, but not a bishop. That middle ground is, is really kind of actually demeaning, I find, to women. It's saying you can come in somewhat but not all the way rather than painting a, a clearer picture of the distinction between the two sexes. I would I would rather have a conversation with someone who wants to see women fully all the way up to the level of bishop than say talk to someone or I, I'll have a conversation with anyone. I find it more tenable than someone who says, no, 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 women can be deacons but nothing else.
1: Right. I think that's right. Now, now it is important to note, um, I think the church and I think one of the reasons that women's ordination has become a more popular thing is because the church has not always done well at having a vision for what women, how women should participate in ministry. That's right. And so um, it's important. And I think that there it's been recovered a little bit. Um, Some churches have deaconesses. And they use the title to distinguish between deacons who are ordained in holy orders and deaconesses who are women who have pledged to serve the church. So you can find deaconesses in parts of the ACNA, um, the diocese that I was in, Missionary Diocese of All Saints. Um, they have a deaconess program. The Reformed Episcopal Church has deaconesses, uh, and the APA does as well. I think most of the continuing churches probably do. Um, so there are opportunities for women to, um, to uh participate in the ministry of the church and all and all that and it's i think it's really important it died out in the episcopal church when women started to be ordained in the That's 70s right. so it's been a process of bringing those things back
0: yeah and maybe we just need to do an episode on women ministry and orders in that nature we definitely are very much in favor of women being very active and serving and being a part of the ministries of the church though we will hold to a distinction of of male only holy orders That's enough for us to lose some listeners, so let's move on.
1: Bo H. asks, uh, as an outsider coming from a credo-baptist evangelical background, former Pentecostal, now Calvinistic Baptist, the concept of infant baptism is really difficult to embrace, even though it seems to flow right along with the tide of everything else I find myself hungering for in the great tradition, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, a high view of the sacraments, the hypostatic union, the episcopacy, etc., I would really like to hear more about the specific topic of infant baptism, though I know I'm not in the majority in terms of who is probably listening to the podcast, and also this might be a topic too big for a Q&A episode. It is a big topic, but I think we can handle it at least quickly.
0: Yeah, let's run through it quickly. Bo. I think you've asked a question that actually more people are asking than you might imagine, and I think it's always good for us as Anglicans to be kind of uh, always constantly recatechized on some of these basics of the faith. So first, let me recommend—I I recommend a Lutheran book to anyone who asks about infant baptism. It's by A. Andrew Doss, and it's called *Baptized into God's Family*. And I offer this because he does an excellent job grounding everything as a good Lutheran must, is solely in Holy Scripture. So for those who are questioning holy ba- uh, infant baptism, they're generally coming as Bo is from a Baptistic background. So they need to be proved not from tradition, from Holy Scripture. And this book does a good job. So first, uh, to wrap your head around this, Bo and everyone else who's thinking through infant baptism, I think you have to understand that modern Baptistic Christianity that stems from the Reformation onward in the Anabaptist tradition, I think it has a different understanding of salvation than the early church and even Israel in in the Bible, salvation is primarily a communal event in the Bible that comes to you sovereignly from God. Although your will, your decision is is a necessary piece of the puzzle, it isn't really the primary part. So so therefore, from the very beginning, we see that God has included children in the covenant through circumcision. And these are children who can't make decisions and God doesn't seem too concerned with that self autonomy is not God's greatest um greatest virtue that he wants to protect in his children so circumcision covenant and then Paul directly connects holy baptism to circumcision in colossians 2:11 through 12 and if he makes that analogy of what's going on in baptism as a fulfillment and completion of circumcision as a sign and marker and birther. Is that a word? Yeah, birther into the covenant. I'm not sure that's a word. We're going to go those with Those are it. people who think President Obama wasn't born in America. Oh, my gosh, birthers. you're right. I forgot about those. <laughs> oh, man. No, we're going to say now circumcision is a birther, and so is baptism into the covenant of Christ. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so uh, if if Paul was to say that as he does to a Jewish audience, I think it's pretty... Pretty good ground to think they would assume a child could receive it as well. And we see evidence with the household baptisms in acts. A Jew would have assumed that children were a part of this covenant. That's that's the way it's always been. Now, I think another way to approach the question is to ask this. What does baptism do? Now, go listen, Bo and all others who are here and asking this. Go listen to our episode on holy baptism. Uh, In short, what we say is that baptism saves us because that's what St. Peter says, by uniting us to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is what St. Paul says. It washes away our sins. In the traditional language of Western Christianity, it washes away the stain of original sin. Do babies have sin? Do babies have the stain of original sin? Are they in need of salvation? Unless you're just the most radical of radical Pelagians, the answer is yes, of course. Babies need Jesus. So how do we give them to Jesus that he might save them? The New Testament gives one option. Dedication. Oh, 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 sorry. I forgot about that verse. Dedication. <laughs> With water. That naturally raises the question. Sorry, we're trying not to die laughing. Well, that naturally raises the question. What about faith? What about the faith of the kid? Don't you have to believe? Well, faith, of course, is necessary. So there are two ways that The tradition of the church has looked at this. Children either rest upon the faith of their parents and godparents at the time of their baptism until they're confirmed and can claim faith for themselves, or it could be that infants actually have faith granted to them in baptism that grows through the course of their life. I mean, you have to remember John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb when the Blessed Virgin Mary, pregnant with Christ, entered the room. He had faith in Jesus, even though it wasn't a rational faith. So I think it's probably a combination of both faith of the parents, God parents, God granting the seed of faith in baptism. Faith is there. Baptism's not a get out of hell free card. You don't get dunked and go do what you want. Faith is there, holy life, but it's a beginning. Anything you want to add to that, Father?
1: No, I think I think you're absolutely right there, and I think it's always important to remind people that infant baptism is the singular best picture for how God's grace does actually work. Right? I've mentioned this in my sermon on Sunday. Uh, very rarely have I baptized a baby where they've really wanted to be baptized. You know, I mean, usually they're kicking and screaming, and they don't they don't enjoy the water being poured on them. But it's such a picture of that that. They're not the ones affecting the result of the baptism. The Holy Spirit is. Um, And so I think it's always a a great picture for us to, uh, to have. And baptizing babies is definitely one of the best parts of being ordained as a priest.
0: I totally agree. Our final question is from C. Carter Glass. Are there any rules for confession in Anglicanism? If so, where are they to be found? Specifically, how often should one confess? Are venial sins as well as mortal sins to be confessed? What is the difference between a venial sin and a mortal sin, and how does the penitent distinguish between them? How long has it been since your last confession? Does this mean how long has it been since my last auricular confession or my last general confession? as at morning and evening prayer or at the Holy Eucharist. There's a lot in there.
1: There is a lot in there. I think I think it's important to remember that private confession did fall out of favor in Anglican tradition um, for a long time. It was actually E.B. Pusey who helped bring it back <clears throat> as a practice. And uh, most places, I think, would accept it as a practice uh, nowadays. Um, whether they might be more reformed or evangelical. I think it's more of a question of whether they emphasize it as much.
0: And I would say that even though it fell out of practice, it was kind of there early in the prayer book. Yes, yes. You have, if you want to go read the early exhortations to communion, I think you're right, it fell out of practice, but there was this, I don't know how old this uh, nice little jingle is, but it goes something like confession for Anglicans. How's it go, Father? All, All can, some, some should, not should none to. must. Yeah, none must. That's it. So all can, some should, you commit something grave. Maybe it's good for your soul, but none must because we have a real confession and a real absolution at morning prayer, evening prayer, and the Holy Eucharist.
1: So then the question, uh, are venial sins as well as, or actually, no, I'm sorry. The first question was how often should one confess? Um, I think pastorally, the best advice we can give you is to confess often uh, frequently as much as you can, um, because it's always good to hear, uh, that your sins are forgiven. Um, and it's necessary, I think too, uh, so that you're not carrying that sin, uh, with you. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's a kind of purging that Mm -hmm. happens when you go to confession and, um, and it can really, uh, help people in their, um, spiritual lives. So I think you Mm -hmm. should go as, as frequently as possible.
0: Right. And when I talk to people kind of setting up a spiritual discipline plan, I generally start at once every six weeks to two months. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That's that's a good time for doing it. I think ideally in an ideal world, you would confess every week before you receive the sacrament. Yes, exactly.
1: The next two questions were kind of related. That was about the venial and mortal sins. So the distinction um, there is a Roman Catholic uh, distinction, and it's based on 1 John. 1 John talks about uh, the sins which uh, lead to death. Um, so we do know that there are some sins that are uh, in, in many ways more serious than others. Uh, you have some people who will like to try and say that all sin is equal And there's a sense in which that's true. We're we're all equally sinful um, in that we're separated from God. But, you know, murder is not the same thing
0: as stealing five
1: bucks. right?
0: Yeah, and I think theologically, and this is what James gets at in his epistle, theologically, the murderer, the adulterer, the liar are kind of in the same playing field before the divine court. All sin requires... um, requires this, this payment, this debt to God. And so, yeah, we're all in need of a savior, whether you murder, commit adultery, or just lie a couple times your life. But yeah, practical experience, wisdom, even Paul kind of sets mm-hmm. sexual sin to the side and says, this is a unique category because it's sin against your own body. Mm. So there, I, I don't, I don't want to get too bogged down in details of the degrees of sin, but I do find this quote from Archibald Campbell Knowles, who was a great Anglo-Catholic American Episcopalian back in the early 1900s into the mid of the century. And in his great little book, The Practice of Religion, if you all out there don't have this, I would really recommend it. It's kind of a instruction in Anglo-Catholicism and then just the rest of the book is prayers and devotions and remember to fast on this day and this is how you do it type stuff. So it's a, it's a guide to how to live the Anglican life. But he says in there, the difference between mortal sin and venial sin is that mortal sin is grave in its nature and is done willingly, knowingly, and deliberately, while venial sin is slight in an offense and is committed thoughtlessly and carelessly. So another way, I think, to put this is mortal sins are those actions derived from a place of unbelief, and they manifest such unbelief. So to commit a mortal sin in kind of the classical sense severs yourself from a relationship with God. So it involves unbelief, it involves willingly rejecting the grace of God, but you can be forgiven. Roman Catholicism would say you have to go to auricular confession to be forgiven, Anglicanism isn't would say that's probably your best route to take, but we wouldn't hold out judgment on do you go automatically to hell if you don't confess it to a priest.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then typically, so the last question was, how long has it been since your last confession? That question doesn't mean how long has it been since my last auricular confession or my last general confession. And I think in Roman Catholicism, that would most definitely mean auricular confession uh, and I believe in Anglicanism, we would probably mean the same thing. That's right. Uh, like we said, it is a real confession and a real absolution during the mass. So it's not like you have to question mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure contextually the question is asking about um, a regular confession.
0: Right. And I think the point of the question is to call to mind, oh, if I if it's been six months that I really should be confessing sins over the past six months. Yeah. I think that's the purpose of the question, to get you to realize kind of the time frame we're dealing with. Don't go before, but don't forget anything, right? Just because it was six months ago. There we go. That is it for our questions and our answers. We'll make sure to do another episode like this. Uh, We'll give it a few months, maybe six months, and do it again. I know that Father Wesley and I enjoy doing these, and we know you, the listeners, because of the response we have enjoy submitting questions. So we'll come back to this, but we've now come to that time in our show where we talk about what we are into. Father West, what are you into? So two things for me.
1: Uh, The first, and I know you're into this too, Father Miles, is uh, the new Kanye West album, Jesus is King. Yeah. Uh, I've I've always been a big Kanye West fan, to be honest with you. Um, I think his music is pretty exceptional. Uh, But this, this album, The more I listen to it, the better I think it really is. I mean, it's it is straight gospel. Um, His theology is really sound and probably more substantive than substantive than ninety five percent of Christian music, at least. Um, So I I am loving it.
0: Yeah, I've listened to it. I mentioned earlier I'm driving an hour to and from my church when I go in, and thanks be to God, that's changing this coming week when I finally move. But I've listened to the album four times all the way through. Yeah. And the first time it was bizarre and strange because it didn't sound like Kanye. It doesn't sound like what you would expect. You don't think so? Well, I have a more limited experience with Kanye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess it was this beautiful blending of kind of African-American um, spirituality and c- gospel music with some rap, with some hip-hop, with some R&B. I mean, you got... Kenny G with a sick saxophone solo. So, but I, 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 so I found the music, not what I expected, but nonetheless good. And I also, I totally agree. I found the theology to be overwhelmingly strong. I mean, he is unabashedly saying, Jesus is God. He is King and we will worship him. Yep. Now, the only thing that I, I kind of wish he put in there was a more, clear statement on the death and resurrection, but he, like you said, has done more than a lot of Christian music has done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's good stuff. So, uh, Jesus is King by Kanye's one. And then the other thing, uh, for me, which is probably surprising, uh, is, uh, running actually. So I think I even made fun of you, uh, when you, chose running a while back father miles but um i repent and i'm heartily sorry for these my misdoings um but yeah i've been i've just been going out and running because it's faster than going to the gym a lot of times and uh i have actually enjoyed myself while i'm out there now it's about to be a lot colder and i don't know if i'll enjoy it so much then Uh, i don't like it when your lungs hurt because of the air is cold but i have been enjoying it it's nice to be outside it's nice to run with my dog so i like it
0: well good yeah i I started running like three and a half years ago and it was after seminary because I realized I had to do something to stay in shape Mm -hmm. and the first time I ran I ran half a mile and I bent over and almost threw up (laughs) and now last week I ran five miles so it's it it took three years to get there but keep up it's uh it's good exercise And I asked my doctor one time, now, what about my knees? Am I going to have to have knee surgery? He said, I'd rather have to replace your knees than for you to have hypertension and diabetes and cardiovascular. And he just went through the whole list. So I run, even though I don't enjoy it. Okay, what am I into? So last time I mentioned that I had read Beowulf, kind of getting into, that was classical poetry and epic poem. Well, I've also been into a modern poet. This guy's name is Billy Collins, and if you know anything about modern American poetry, then you've probably heard his name because he was the poet laureate of the United States. Let's see, when was that? Oh, from 2001 to 2003, professor at Vanderbilt. And he just writes these incredibly accessible, funny poems about everyday life. And so they're normally really short, too. I want to just share one with our listeners. If you're not into poetry, as my wife said, I'm not gonna like this. And she thought these poems were awesome. Here it is. This is a poem called Introduction to Poetry. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room And fill the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means.
1: I think that's awesome. That is fantastic.
0: Yeah, I mean, don't we all do that? You you hear a poem and you immediately go, wow, what does that mean? Uh And so he's saying "You're, you're missing the point of poetry. If all you're doing is trying to figure out the meaning, hang out with the poem, explore it, be with it. Well, I think that's enough for one day enough damage. So if you like what we're doing, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Rate, review, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast, and share us with your friends. If you want to continue the conversation, then of course, join our Facebook group and let us know what you think about the answers we've provided to your questions. You can always email us with more feedback or with show ideas or with questions for future episodes at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter at The Sacramentalist. And so now, Father Wes, will you bless us?